0: From the heart of Appalachia, from the campuses of East Tennessee State University and Emory and Henry College, this is Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about my congregation at fpcelizabethton.org. The Tri-Cities of Tennessee, Southwest Virginia, Western North Carolina is the birthplace of country music and we are going to spend some time today uh, talking with Ted Olson, a professor of Appalachian Studies at East Tennessee State University, and his contributions to helping preserve the history of Appalachian music uh, with the Bristol Sessions and the Johnson City Sessions. He's here to talk about that, and we have two programs with Ted Olson. He's going to be talking about that as well as a book of poetry of his called Revelations. Uh, Ted Olson holds the Ph.D. in English from the University of Mississippi. He's written, edited, or co-edited 15 books, including Blue Ridge Folk Life, a Tennessee Folklore Sampler, and Breathing in Darkness, a collection of poetry. In 2012, he received two Grammy Award nominations for his work as writer and producer for the Bristol Sessions (1927 to 1928), the Big Bang of country music. This is a five-CD box set with an accompanying 120-page hardcover book released by Bear Family Records in March of 2011. And this year, again, he's been nominated in the Best Historical Album category of the Grammy Awards for a CD, Old Time Smoky Mountain Music. Dr. Olson was the producer and liner notes author for the project. And for his work as music historian, Dr. Olson has received the East Tennessee Historical Society's Regional Excellence in History Award of Distinction, as well as an award from the International Bluegrass Music Association. Dr. Olson is a busy man. His latest volume of poetry is called Revelations, published by Celtic Cat in 2012. Dr. Ted Olson is with me in the studio to talk about poetry, uh, the Bristol Sessions, old time Smoky Mountain music, and to sing a couple of songs for us. Welcome, Dr. Olson, to Religion for Life.
1: Well, thank you so much for the invitation, John. Pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, Well, congratulations, first of all, on your now three Grammy Award nominations. Uh, That's quite an achievement.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, when one does a project such as those, one is doing it in order to get the music out there to people. But it's nice that industry professionals recognize, you know, the, some merit in them and, and such. So it's, it's, just, it's an honor.
0: Uh, let's talk first about the album that's up for our Grammy this year, Old Time Smoky Mountain Music. Uh, this music was originally collected at the time of the creation of the great Smoky Mountain Park uh, in 1939. What's the story behind that?
1: Right. There was a gentleman whose name was Joseph Hall, Joseph Hall was a collector of sayings, uh, tales. He was a linguist. He came to the Smokies to do his doctoral research. Um, he was working on a doctorate from Columbia University. The head of the National Park Service Unit who put in charge of creating the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, basically out of other people's properties, you know that it was one of the few parks that was actually created from previously owned, properties. Many people had to surrender their Mm -hmm. homes in order to create the park. Mm. Um, But the the head of the uh, park service gave him, uh, Joseph Hall, authorization to go in there and record their speech, record their sayings, their tales, to talk to them, in other words, um, in order to document their unique kind of dialect. Well, of course, the Park Service well knew that in giving the people who were being displaced to make the park a chance to talk about their experiences, uh, that potentially some very negative experiences might be documented for all time. So it was the risk that they ran, but the Park Service, uh, those particular people involved, were very brave and 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 aware. Of all the sacrifices that people were making, and and they weren't worried about public relations. They were well, they were really just worried about serving people to the best of their human ability. Mm-hmm. So Joseph Hall was just kind of the middleman and all that. He was given the uh, opportunity to step in and to uh, record their speech, their sayings, etc. Well, it, it, as it turned out, many of the people who were being displaced to make the park were also amateur musicians, and some of them quite talented. And while Joseph Hall didn't consider himself a music man in any way, shape, or manner, he did have access to recording equipment. And so at one point in the process of of documenting the speech of the people of the Smokies as they were leaving their homes and their farms... He decided I'm going to record some of their music as well, and so the some of the recordings he made, I would say the the finest recordings of music that he made in 1939 in the Smokies found their way onto this CD that we put together a few years back that is up for the Grammy this year.
0: Oh, that's exciting! And there are about uh, thirty songs or Thir-
1: thirty four selections called from nearly a hundred music recordings, but these are truly the creme de la creme, of, of the recordings made in the in the Smokies. These were the finest, uh, shall we say, amateur musicians in the Smokies at the time who uh, you know were very blessed in our modern perspective to actually know what old-time Smoky music sounded like because if not for Joseph Hall recording them in 1939, I believe that uh, this music and these styles would have been lost to the world because, of course, people were asked to leave, and when they left the Smokies and moved elsewhere, many of them, you know, started to sing other kinds of music and, you know, communicate in other ways, and so some of the traditions died off pretty quickly after they left, but uh, Joseph Hall got there in the nick of time to record this uh, culture.
0: And some of these songs were unique, really, to that region themselves, and some of the songs were were, uh, songs from other regions or popular songs that... uh had come into their uh, into their repertoire, or
1: sure, absolutely. The people of the Smokies in 1939 were pretty well versed in popular music of that era. I mean, some of the people had uh, victrolas and whatnot and listened to Jimmy Rogers and the Carter Family, mm-hmm. and to some degree they sang those songs. But some of the more traditional material that they also sang, some of it was what we would say indigenous to the Smokies, heard nowhere else, and. Uh, Fortunately, Hall recorded a little bit of that music, I mean, as much as he kind of stumbled across. Other uh, traditional songs and and ballads and tunes that uh, Joseph Hall recorded in the Smokies back in 1939 were pretty generally distributed around the Southeast. You know, ballads like John Henry, you know, and and, and, uh, Sourwood Mountain and some of these very well-known pieces. I think the real prize in some ways the, the the documentary prizes of the Joseph Hall music collection are the rare ballads that he recorded in 1939 that are on the CD that were never heard elsewhere and never recorded in any other at any other time so that they only exist in this one form um some of the amateur musicians were quite talented as anyone can hear from listening to the CD others Maybe he didn't necessarily prize himself in their musical abilities, but it didn't really matter back then. Music was your entertainment, and you, you made music you know, on a, on, a, on a Friday or Saturday evening or on a Sunday morning in church because it was social music. It was the music that was expressive of your culture and your values, and, and it, it brought people together. And Joseph Hall recognized that, and happily he recorded it.
0: My guest, if you're just joining us on Religion for Life, is Dr. Ted Olson. He's the professor of Appalachian Studies, American folk music instructor at East Tennessee State University, and has just uh, produced in part of an album of uh, just produced an album, Old Time Smoky Mountain Music, which is up for a Grammy Award. And uh, we've just been talking about that. And and you also brought your banjo along with you. And uh, one of the songs you mentioned was uh, John Henry.
1: That's right, John Henry. Uh... A song that has probably existed since the 1870s, shortly after emancipation and the end of the uh, Civil War, um, African-Americans scattered various places to find work. And one of the places where they found work was to work on the railroad. And many people know the story or you know, part of the story of John Henry. But in recent years, uh, folklorists and various scholars have called into question some of the assumptions about you know, who John Henry was and where that song originated. You know, there were years when people traced it to West Virginia, but more recent scholars have traced it to Alabama and have actually identified who John Henry was. One one scholar, in fact, names the, the real name of John Henry, John Henry being a nickname. Um, you know, he, John Henry was a folk legend. So and there was
0: a historical John Henry.
1: Th- that's right. And so that, but, uh, you know, most people who have sung John Henry over the years, uh, either in its longer ballad form or in a more truncated kind of song form, uh, didn't know and didn't care about the the real story behind John Henry. They just loved the message in, in, in the narrative uh, in the, in, with, embedded in the song lyric. And it's a song lyric or it's a narrative in the longer ballad version that tells the story of people rising up against adversity, standing up for their rights, and even if it hurt them, even if it killed them in the case of one version of John Henry, they were proud that they hadn't uh, allowed the machine to tell them what to do and dictate you know, what they could work and how they could work.
0: And this is Dr. Ted Olson singing and playing for us John Henry on Religion for Life.
2: hammer's gonna be the death of me lord lord hammer's gonna be the death of me well the captain said to john henry henry i'm gonna bring that steam drill around i'm gonna bring that steam drill out on the job i'm gonna whip that steam drill on down lord lord whip that steam drill on down Henry said, "Right back to that cabin, cabin. Lord, a man ain't nothing but a man. But before I let your steam drill beat me down, I'm gonna die my hammer in my hand. Lord, Lord, die with my hammer in my hand. Well, the man who invented the steam drill thought he was mighty fine." But John Henry drew 15 feet, and that steam you alone made nine. Law, Lord, Lord, steam drill alone made nine. Well, Henry, he hammered in the mountains. His hammer was striking fire, and he worked so hard that he broke his poor heart. And he laid down his hammer and he cried, Law, Lord. Lord Lay down his hammer and he cried Henry, he had a little woman Her name was Polly Ann John Henry took sick and he had to go to bed So Polly Ann drew steel like a man, all la Polly Ann drew steel like a man well, Henry, he had a little baby palm of your hands and the last words i heard that poor boy say was my daddy was a steel driving man oh lord daddy was a steel driving man henry he hammered in the mountains hammer was striking fire and he worked so hard that he broke his poor heart and he, Lay down his hammer and he died, long, long. Lay down his hammer and he died. So they took John Henry to the White House And buried him in the sand. And when those locomotives roll on by, They say, there lies a steel-driving man, long, long. There lies a steel-driving man. Every Monday morning When the bluebirds begin to sing You can hear John Henry, my Lord, more. You can hear John Henry's hammering, ring, Lord, Lord You can hear John Henry's hammering
0: My guest is uh, Ted Olson, and he's uh, with us in the studio to talk uh, about music and about poetry. Uh, In 2012, you received two Grammy nominations for the Bristol Sessions, 1927 to 1928, The Big Bang of Country Music. What made these sessions The Big Bang?
1: What's well, funny you should uh, identify that uh, kind of slogan, that oft-used slogan about the Bristol Sessions. First of all, it's a very controversial slogan.
0: I would think. I was thinking about that specifically yeah. with Appalachia.
1: Yeah. yeah. We used it on the box set. The record company, Bear Family Records, uh, ended up using that phrase because you can't... Get away from the phrase. Everybody uses the phrase these days around the United States, frankly around the world, because the Bristol Sessions are a world-renowned phenomenon of having introduced kind of a modern concept of how to make a, a country record. You know, Country r- recording existed before the Bristol Sessions. It was not, though, until 1927 when Ralph Peer came to Bristol, Tennessee, to make records and in the process discover people such as Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family that a new concept of a country record was introduced, one involving original songs and and more kind of self-consciously modern-style performing uh, approaches and and, uh, songwriting, copywriting, you know, in other words, where people could make a living uh, as a musician rather than performing in an amateur capacity. I mean, Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family made... Fairly good livings as professional musicians. So it professionalized the music, is what the Bristol Sessions did, and created a kind of a career track for a, a star in the country music industry. And not coincidentally, of course, Ralph Peer, the producer of all this, the, the kind of the genius behind the Bristol Sessions, uh, made a very handsome living himself as a kind of promoter of this music and copyright sharer in certain, uh, you know, in terms of music publishing. But uh, that slogan, uh, the Big Bang of country music, is problematical in, in many respects. I mean, as I say, country music really was first recorded in 1923 in Atlanta, so that predates the Bristol mm-hmm. session. So, I mean, the the Big Bang sounds awfully early in the process, and yet there was, there was music being made and recorded earlier. So in that respect, a phrase like the Big Bang doesn't necessarily apply in some respects. And some scholars have taken that that phrase, to task. Another reason why it's problematical is that some of the people who've recorded, who did record in Bristol in 1927 and in the follow-up recording session in Bristol in 1928 were either holiness or Baptist uh, preachers and would have had a problem with such an overtly kind of uh, uh, the scientific phrase such as the big Bang being being used to describe their own involvement with the bristol Sessions. it
0: doesn 't seem to be the metaphor that quite fits
1: exactly, but it was it was a metaphor that was introduced in the 70s so it 's okay. a retroactive kind of way to describe a revolutionary recording session, which is exactly what the what the Bristol sessions were. They were revolutionary they changed the way in which music was made and the way in which it was promoted and, and marketed. And made possible, you know, careers in country music. Um, but what makes those records so special beyond the business side of things? Because they they truly introduced some new business models and new technologies. Some the, the first time in uh, that the electronic microphone was utilized in the making of uh, country music records. You know, before that, recordings were made an, through an analog miking system, which was very imprecise dynamically speaking. So the record sounded much better in 1927 in Bristol than anything done earlier in, say, 26 or 25. Mm. But beyond that is that traditional approaches to music making found a kind of a modern shaping influence. So... In other words, the music that was made in Bristol in 1927 wasn't traditional any longer. Ralph Peer, as a, as a producer, encouraged his musicians to take traditional uh, themes, traditional material, and reshape it, and and in some ways, slicken it up a little bit, make it a little more catchy, a little more uh, singable, a little something that would be dynamically richer coming off of a... Uh, 7 8 RPM platter when played at home on people's Victrolas. So, um, you know, tradition met modernity in the Bristol Sessions, and that, that's exactly why that's important. An interesting thing about the Bristol Sessions is that Ralph Peer, the producer, recognized that people identify most with lyric content. So, Ralph Peer uh, discouraged people to record instrumentals and encouraged them to record um, songs with. Potent lyrics and many of those lyrics were sacred lyrics uh, that Ralph Peer was very interested in. Kind of seeing if sacred uh, recordings would sell on the commercial market. There was kind of a, a, a notion before then that maybe it was inappropriate to commercially record uh, sacred material, and so there was a de-emphasis on that. You know, earlier when re- when country records were made. Secular material was emphasized over sacred material, but uh, Ralph Peer proved through the 1927 Bristol Sessions that sacred records sold ever as well as secular records. And uh, some attribute the Bristol Sessions for kind of inspiring Southern gospel, the commercial industry that uh, followed in the 1930s.
0: My guest is Ted Olson, a professor of Appalachian Studies, American Folk Music Instructor at East Tennessee State University, in the studio with me uh, for Religion for Life. And uh, there are, in addition to the Bristol sessions, there are some Johnson City sessions that you're going to be uh, uh, compiling uh, music from that now. Is that your project you're working on currently?
1: Right. Currently, I'm working on uh, getting some very uh, rare and, I would say, nearly forgotten recordings that were made in Johnson City, Tennessee, in 1928 and 29 available to the public really for the first time. Um, the Johnson City Sessions were in some ways an after effect or an aftershock of the Bristol Sessions. Uh, the Johnson City Sessions were made by a different record company, Columbia Records in, in the case of the Johnson City Sessions, Victor Records in the case of the Bristol Sessions. So a different record company identified the fact that the Bristol Sessions were selling extremely well and sent, kind of encouraged, their own field agent or field producer, Frank Walker, to see if lightning would strike twice in the same general geographical spot, namely in Appalachia. Uh, Mind you, the Bristol sessions were the first truly successful recording session ever held in Appalachia. Um, Mm -hmm. There had been one two years earlier that wasn't very successful uh, in Asheville. But when the Bristol sessions caught fire and the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers became major stars, Columbia said, let's see what we can discover by going back to that same neck of the woods. They came to Johnson City. Uh, Frank Walker was the producer. He was the gentleman who discovered Bessie Smith. So he was a pioneer of the re- commercial recorded sound industry, kind of like Ralph Peer had been. Um, so he was a big name in the field. He recorded uh, a number of artists in Johnson City in in October of 1928 and then came back one year later, October of 1929, made some thrilling recordings in Johnson City. Um, But inevitably, they didn't take off in the same way that the Bristol Sessions did, at least commercially speaking. Um, One of the major reasons was the very last day of the 1929 Johnson City Sessions was Black Thursday, Uh the beginning of the Wall Street crash. Um, Those records were doomed not to sell well, and with the Depression coming on, uh, basically people didn't pay a whole lot of attention to some uh, recordings made in Johnson City, and they kind of fell by the wayside, only to be rediscovered in 2013, we hope, so uh, people in our Johnson City community are working together to have a series of events uh, in Johnson City to Kind of celebrate this lost legacy of uh, old-time Appalachian music uh, this this coming summer and fall.
0: Well, that's exciting. So that uh, is when you're looking for them to be um, recorded and and produced is uh, the summer and fall.
1: That's right. We hope the the box set, also from Bear Family Records of Germany, this new project, the Johnson City sessions. We hope that box set to be released in perhaps August of 2013.
0: I'll look forward to that. Uh, Ted Olson, my guest on Religion for Life, how how did you become interested in Appalachian culture and music? Well,
1: you know, I grew up in the big city, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was in some ways a pretty good spot for one to grow up in if one was later to devote one's life to studying Appalachian culture and and music because in Washington, D.C., every summer they held the— the Smithsonian Institution held the— festival of american folk life which is today called the smithsonian folk life festival it was a terrific opportunity to witness to to be around people from various cultures around the world including appalachia also just to, you know very close by too was the national folk festival which was also held in washington so these were free festivals it didn't cost much you know other than getting downtown to uh, to participate in in, in these and as a young person, I basically heard some of the most acclaimed Appalachian musicians and musicians from other parts of the world performing right there on the mall in Washington or in nearby Wolf Trap or something. Well, be that as it may, I was so intrigued by who they were and the stories they told and the people that they were, because in some cases I went up during the break and talked to them, and they were awfully, you know, encouraging, that, saying, you know, it's a big world out there, boy. Why don't you go and find out about it? So I followed that kind of advice, and when I was a teenager, I took a job in West Virginia in the mountains at a nature center, and for five years, I was a naturalist at a, at a nature center um, and learned a great deal about living in the mountains, about the flora and fauna of the mountains, of course, but also the cultural life. One project I did at this nature center is I led a kind of a foxfire-style project where I introduced uh, people of Appalachia to people of Washington, D.C., who were coming for summer programs to to study and learn, you know, students and such who came to West Virginia to learn about the mountains. So, kind of served as an intermediary between these two groups, and I think people learned from one another. It was very fruitful. After that, uh, you know, I was pretty much uh, hooked on Appalachia. I wanted to know more. So I moved on and uh, you know, worked for a period of time, a number of years, as a National Park Service ranger on the Blue Ridge Parkway and for a short time in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. So there, too, I was serving kind of as an intermediary between uh, Appalachia and people from all over the place who were coming to Appalachia to recreate, you know, but oftentimes they didn't know much about the place that they were visiting, and that was my role to try to you know, help them better understand the magic that is Appalachia. and at, at some point in that whole process, I realized I needed to, if I wanted to continue to study Appalachia, I needed kind of to go back to school. So I did, and, and here I am today teaching at East Tennessee State University. Um, but even as I'm teaching, I'm learning. You know, It's, an, it's a lifelong process to understand the complexity of, of a place like Appalachia.
0: Ted Olson, my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, And we're going to close out this session with um, an instrumental piece, uh, Soldier's Joy. Can you tell me a little bit about that song?
1: Soldier's Joy is an old-world fiddle tune brought over by the settlers from uh, Northern Ireland to Appalachia. And Soldier's Joy was allegedly a tune that was written by a fiddler who had deserted the, the king's army back in the um, Middle Ages, or late Middle Ages, most likely. In essence, he had deserted the king's army and was uh, caught and threatened, you know, execution being the ultimate uh, penalty for having gone AWOL in in that time period, deserting your king. But somewhere along the way, they heard that he was a master fiddler. And the king said, well, what a waste to let this man go to death. Let's put him to work. And said, can you compose a tune that, that we can use as kind of our, 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 you know, something that we can celebrate and use in our various kinds of ceremonial purposes. And so this is a kind of apocryphal story perhaps, but this is the story that I've always heard associated with this uh, Old World song which, or tune which probably uh, originated in Scotland.
0: Ted Olson, thank you for being with me today on Religion for Life. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shack and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find information about upcoming shows, links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. Follow us on Facebook, iTunes, and Twitter. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. Be well.